Hello and welcome back to the Big Book Project. My name is Pavan and I'm Atri. And in this our third episode, we're talking about Terry Eagleton's After Theory. The edition that we're using for this conversation was published by Penguin in 2003. Let's get going. Right. So this time I this time around I will ask a number of the questions and Bhavin will take on the heavy lifting. So here's my first question Bhavin. Uh Eagleton writes a, a quite eloquent acerbic book if I might say as a frontal attack on the dissolution of certainty primarily through the postmodern turn in the humanities and its wider consuming public. Would you agree with the synopsis and what do you have to say about Eagleton's rather aggressive take? Sure. So I'm going to take a leaf out of your book, Atri, and uh, buy some time for myself by saying that's a really great question. <laughs> okay. So um, I think part of the answer to that question may lie in Eagleton's prefatory note to the book, where he says that the book argues against what i take to be a current orthodoxy i do not believe that this orthodoxy addresses itself to questions searching enough to meet the demands of our political situation and i try to spell out why this is so and how it might be remedied so i think there are really two parts of that quote that are helpful for us one is what he thinks of as the current orthodoxy and the second part would be why he thinks it's not helpful to the current political situation that we find ourselves in because eagleton is of course talking about postmodernism here and and he defines it as a movement that is prejudiced against norms unities and consensus of all kinds and he says that this is a politically catastrophic idea he calls postmodernist people who think that the world is entirely made up of differences and who think an identity is something that you somehow forcibly have to have just in order to survive and as such he calls it a set of ideas that defies solidarity of any kind and therefore is politically inert uh, i would tend to agree with the comments in your question and and while you're right in saying that eagleton mounts a full frontal attack on postmodernism and its attempt at the dissolution of all certainty there are two additional aspects that i think are quite interesting about this book the first is the casting of postmodernism as the form of thinking that was at least when the book was written the incumbent upon the throne of thinking in the humanities what he describes as the current orthodoxy having freshly ousted theories that were earlier ruling that much contested roost as eagleton describes the manner in which these theories took down earlier ideas he simultaneously sets postmodernism up for a similar takedown and this leads me to what i think is the second interesting thing about the book as a whole now eagleton doesn't merely stop at tearing postmodernism down in his tongue in cheek amusing and yes acerbic style but he also talks about ideas that emerge in the wake of postmodernism and are now beginning to take center stage among others he cites feminist and postcolonialist studies as fields that he seems to think of as better ideas or better alternatives to postmodernism but 
Most of all, he mounts a defense of materialism as an idea that is necessary in our current political situation and, and an idea that is as important today as it may have been a hundred or however many years ago. Most of the book seems to me Eagleton's elaboration on these two ideas. For example, only a few words into the book, after conferring these laudatory comments on the authors from what he describes as the high theory period of cultural theory, and, and when I say laudatory being run over by a laundry van in Paris aside, he delivers a scathing burn to the postmodernists, suggesting that they have had no original ideas of their own, and then he throws out the question, what kind of fresh thinking does the new era demand? And, and the answer to this is, it's not particularly new thinking, because Eagleton makes no secret of his materialist affiliations throughout the book. It, even if you didn't know anything at all about Terry Eagleton before you were to pick up this book, you would have to be a particularly unobservant reader not to notice that Eagleton thinks materialism is a good idea. Most of the book is his, very materialist, response to the shortcomings of postmodernism. So, so Terry Eagleton is posing as a materialist, which might mean that uh, he's somewhere in the Marxist canon, which might mean that uh, people like him and, and uh, Eagleton included um, are of the opinion that, that material relations or matter, you know, land, capital, uh, machines, factories, all of these things shape human relations in very primary ways, in uh, in ways that cannot be denied and can can be cannot be obfuscated by seemingly um, only identitarian or signified ways of relations between um, you know human beings or humans and objects, and uh, so on and so forth. So um, thanks for that. On page nineteen. Um, Terry Eagleton says, and I quote, in principle, however, capitalism is an impeccably inclusive creed. It really doesn't care who it exploits, end quote. Can you elaborate a little bit on this claim and uh, what do you make of this in general? Certainly, and, and, and thank you very much for that very helpful uh, description of what materialism might mean, particularly in the context of, of Eagleton's writings. Um, coming to the question, I think Eagleton gives us a clue about this when he bemoans the postmodernist turn away from normativity. And he says there, the norm now is money. But since money has absolutely no principles or identity of its own, it's no kind of norm at all. It is utterly promiscuous and will happily tag along with the highest bidder. He then talks about capitalism's undiscriminating will to exploit everyone, which is the portion that, that you've read out in the question, in the context of the narrowing of the middle classes and the classical bourgeois, and the postmodernist failure to recognize this aspect of the contemporary world. Now, the attempt to do away with all forms of collective identity does capitalism no harm at all. And this is something we spoke about when we were talking about postmodernism. Because capitalist is, is not so much of an identity as it is more of a factual economic label. Capitalism is as, as happy to sell dreams to, for example, 
the young protagonist in Nachal Mishra's Dhuin through YouTube tutorials on acting as it is to sell you an expensive handloom sari or an SUV to a rich man going through an imagined midlife crisis seeking compensation for who knows what. Now, I, I recall at this point Thomas Piketty's words in his book Capism in the 21st Century. And I'll quote from there. He says there, when the rate of return on capital exceeds the rate of growth of output and income, as it did in the 19th century and seems quite likely to do again in the 21st, capitalism automatically generates arbitrary and unsustainable inequalities that radically undermine the meritocratic values on which democratic societies are based, end quote. And thus, I think what Eagleton is talking about is that this is an existentialist need for capitalism, which is that the rate of return on capital through sales to one and all, no matter who you are, without discrimination in any form, always keep increasing. Because if they don't, and the slowing growth of output and wage income creates too inhospitable a set of living standards for the majority of the population, capitalism may well find itself under real threat through collective action. And, and to my mind, this is what Eagleton is talking about here. It is to avoid this siege of the impoverished that capitalism will willingly sell anything to anybody it can grab hold of. Mm -hmm. but, but let me turn one thing around to you here, Atre. You know, this, this whole point about the nature of the late capitalist class divide. So on page 22, Eagleton writes, and I quote, or rather, the poor have locality until the rich get their hands on it. The rich are global and the poor are local. Though just as poverty is a global fact, so the rich are coming to appreciate the benefits of locality. I know that this is an area that you have particular interest in. So I wonder what kinds of spatial politics do you think Eagleton is explaining here? And, and, and how do you think this may translate into the context of contemporary India? Right. Um, that's a, that's a, a difficult one, but let me take it on. Eagleton, I think, is especially here talking about the time of late capitalism. And late capitalism has a slightly different set of logics that it deploys from high capitalism. So if, you're say, if I'm saying high capitalism, I mean the Fordist era, I mean large factories, big highways, you know, the baby boomer generation in, in the US who also have, have um, two cars and a washing machine and a refrigerator or whatnot and air conditioners and whatnot. Um, it's being of the middle class or even the, of the upper working class, you have a certain level of security of employment and a certain uh, kind of lifestyle that you maintain in the time of high capitalism. And at the time of late capitalism, what happens is that this um, rate of profit and the rate of surplus uh, tends to plateau and eventually decline. And what happens at the decline in the manufacturing industries is that that capital unlocks itself. Literally, the money, the capitalist unlocks his money from the physical wherewithal of the factories and the workers and whatnot and invests in a new uh, frontier of, of technology and investment 
uh, in the case of the post 80s and the 90s, we've seen tech companies, biotech especially, um, in, in internet-based, you know, later what, what becomes the big tech in the early 2000s, this is where their investment has gone. Where has this capital come from? It has capital, this capital has come from an earlier bracket of capital, which was locked in factories and, and usual assembly line production. And what happens to assembly line production once the capital is gone is a, a widespread canvas of decline and unemployment and various other difficulties for the laid off working population. Um, what happens um, in the time of late capitalism is this, this capital starts circulating not just within the nation state, but globally. So people who have access to capital suddenly, uh, not just I'm not just talking about entrepreneurs and capitalists, but also the upper upper work, white collar working class are suddenly um, frenzied in their movement patterns. They experience a, a very mobile life. Uh, they're constantly, you know, taking international holidays or having meetings across the world and so on and so forth. Um, in that regard, um, what he's what, what I think Eagleton is trying to say is poverty or a less resourced um, livelihoods, livelihoods which access less resources, money and otherwise, are incarcerated spatially. Whereas if you have more resource, chances are the globe and mo mobile mobility patterns across the globe are available to you in a more um, succinct manner than a person who's a, a blue collar worker or a farmer or a peasant. Um, but this is, I mean, it can be complicated further if one thinks of migrant labor, uh, especially those who walk the channels of illegal uh, migration across, say, the Mexico borders in the US or uh, who are crossing in boats across the Mediterranean Sea to Italy or Greece. So there's that kind of desperate movement among the lower classes also. But uh, invariably, you will see that the upper classes begin to romanticize locality and enjoy the benefits of globality, um, especially frenzied mobility across the globe, um, if that's, that's how one might put it. Um, and then locality becomes something that the, that's the only resource that a farmer who has a small plot of land in rural Karnataka, that's the only resource he has left. And even his locality, his one last resource, is threatened by any kind of ecotourism company that might arrive in his farmland tomorrow and claim it uh, through a land acquisition procedure and kick him out. Um, so that is the kind of tension over space that is enacted by the logics of late capitalism that I think uh, Terry Eagleton is very eloquently uh, putting forth here. So... Uh, speaking, let's speak a little more uh, about late capitalism, um, and and it strikes me as interesting um, that he's pointing out in a in a later page um, from the one that you quoted recently, capitalism needs a new human being. He says who has never yet existed, one who is prudently restrained in the office and wildly anarchic in the shopping mall. I found that mind-blowing. Anyway, end quote. Um, tab, cap, uh, Eagleton takes head-on the contradictions of late capitalism, I think, here. Um, how would you pass apart his comment on the madly consumptive culture in which we live in today? And Eagleton especially says later that the upper middle classes are assiduously working 
to roughen up their accent and distress their genes. End quote. And by which I guess he means that suffering and hardship have equally seamlessly turned into commodities as well. How is this different from older forms of capitalism? And is there a way out? Sure. I think uh, an update to Eagleton's description of the new kind of human being that capitalism needs might be someone who is prudently restrained in emails and wildly anarchic when shopping online. But once again, I think that it would be useful here to read something that Eagleton says at the very beginning of the book. And, and for those who may be planning to read the book, um, essentially the first chapter, or at least the first 10 to 12 pages, are, are, are seminal in that sense, because everything else that follows has a clue hidden there. On, on page 5, he says, Old-style puritanical capitalism forbade us to enjoy ourselves since once we had acquired a taste for the stuff, we would probably never see the inside of the workplace again. And then he goes on to say, a more canny, consumerist kind of capitalism, however, persuades us to indulge our senses and gratify ourselves as shamelessly as possible. In that way, we will not only consume more goods, we will also identify our own fulfillment with the survival of the system. Now, taking a cue from Eagleton here, I think we find that late capitalism's emphasis on consumerism, by any measure a form of individual self-pleasuring taken to massive scale, may be, as he calls it, its most cunning retaliation at anti-capitalist forces yet. The individualistic hedonism of consumerist capitalism undermines any possibility of collective action. As, as protest crumbles under the weight of pleasure, it's very difficult to provide any kind of effective answer to capitalism. Now, interestingly, this affects not just the left, of course, but also those on the right, as they find their efforts at polarization crumble under the overwhelming need that so many people in this country seem to feel. And, and, and so, for example, you might have crowds of people who otherwise would be willingly whipped into a frenzy over some specious religious fundamentalist issue, but they refuse to give up on particular forms of pleasure and they will pool into theatres projecting Pathan. Now, I'm not sure, however, that turning suffering and hardship into a commodity, as, as Eagleton describes it, is an entirely new phenomenon. The fetishization of suffering, its conversion into a consumable, these are things that have been around forever in, in things like, to take his own example, jeans were once work clothing and we turned them into mainstream fashion and having nothing else left to do to, do to them, we now turn to punching holes in them. But, and I'm using air quotes here, high culture appropriating the cultural artifacts of the lower classes is something that's been playing out over and over and over again. And I think we can find a billion examples of this all over. In, in other contexts, we have cultural appropriation by dominant sections of society. So I'm not entirely sure that there is a way out of this, unless you have some drastic changes in the structural imbalances that separate the haves from the have-nots. I think the answer becomes clearer if we focus on how capitalism has changed with or without suffering and hardship being turned into a commodity. So 
to my understanding, these are two separate issues. Much has been said about the puritanical work ethic that Eagleton cites. And if we are to accept it as a real thing for the moment, then I think we'll also have to acknowledge that this idea relates to a necessity for survival. If there aren't enough consumers, capitalism cannot survive. And so perhaps it was necessary at some point for capitalism to de-emphasize the work ethic and promote pleasure. Of course, as long as you can pay the price for it to ensure its own continuity. Combine this with what Habermas says in The Structural Transformation of the Public Sphere about the emergence of the bourgeois family home as a space for the non-instrumental development of faculties that had nothing to do with survival, but which marked out what was now considered the cultivated personality. And, and I think you'll see once again that as there is increasing economic affluence, there is simultaneously a need to expend resources on, on matters which may make no sense at all to the suffering, such as really expensive but torn jeans. <laughs> But uh, let me let me come back to you, um, push back a little bit on that in the sense that um, to keep the worker alive and the keep the, to keep the worker from rebelling, capital has always had logics of intermittent dream worlds. I'm remembering uh, Susan Buckmore's wonderful book on uh, the post-Cold War world, um, which is called Dream Worlds and Catastrophe. And so capital, I think, operates has always operated on the oscillatory journey between dream worlds and catastrophe. Dream worlds are really important to keep a certain workforce somewhat drugged. And which is why cinema and capitalism have such an intimate, intimate relationship um, of, of which uh, we get some uh, analysis in, in Deleuze and Guattari, in Time Image, um, and, and Walter Benjamin when he's talking about um, the the boulevards of Paris, um, he rem- he remembers that uh, these boulevards are are not spaces where uh, the leisure class, the non leisure class, has has any comfort. The sandwichman is not working. You know the sandwichman that that he describes um, as the last flaneur um, does not have any um, role to play in this kind of you know uh, top hat wearing overcoat wearing, um, very fancy, um, you know, dandy uh, masculine person um, that is walking the streets of the of the um, shopping shopping windows, window shopping in Paris. Um, So let me change track here a little bit and ask you something in in interrogation of Terry Eagleton a little bit. It seems to me that Terry Eagleton's defense of Marxism in the wake of postmodern cultural theory is essentially a Paris Berlin vantage point, if you will, of looking at the world in the era following the fall of the Berlin Wall. How can we engage um, with Terry Eagleton using or being with theory from the South? Is there at all any value in such a project? Before I answer that one, I just want to respond very quickly to some of the things you said leading up to that question. And and, and thank you for that. I, I find that term very, very intri- intriguing and, and, and very beautiful, intermittent dream worlds. 
I think perhaps just to walk back a couple of steps to the previous question, one point maybe that Eagleton either misses or perhaps uh, can't speak to because he's not in this context where you and I are right now is, is it really only the upper middle classes that are distressing their genes? And, and I would say no, because, you know, these intermittent dream worlds, this, this space for the working class to have something to aspire to, I think you'll find that, or at least in my anecdotal experience, I find that many, many people, young people particularly, have aspirations to the same kind of clothing, the same kind of fashion, the same kind of devices as they may see people from the more affluent sections of society espousing. And so somebody who actually can't afford expensive jeans will still be paying a little more on knockoffs or cheaper jeans as long as they look ripped apart in the same way that really expensive jeans might. And and, and similarly, to talk about the exploitation or, or rather cultural appropriation, for example, you know, this whole Mera number Ayega, Gali Boy phenomenon, etc., it's not as if it's only rich people from, you know, posh, well-off areas are watching that film. It, it, it cuts across all sections of society and, and, you know, people across all sections of society seem to have similar aspirations. You spend as much as you can in order to achieve those. So perhaps there is something there after all. But, but to come back to the question, you're absolutely right. I mean, aside from making some passing remarks about his limited field of vision and there's a short discussion somewhere in there about the freedom movements in the erstwhile uh, colonial nations, or rather colonized nations, Eagleton has very little to say really about the non-Eurocentric world. And at least let's give Eagleton credit where it's due. He acknowledges this fact. And he says, look, I don't know too much about it, but this is what I do know about, so I'm going to go across on my merry way. And as to the question about whether we can engage theory from the South, I'd say, of course we can. And, and, and we should. Early on in the book, Eagleton proposes a definition of theory that I find very helpful. He says, if we are to assume that theory is a reasonably systematic reflection on our guiding assumptions, if we are to accept this definition, then we would have to conclude, as Eagleton does, that theory is as indispensable as ever. And we may add it is as dispensable for us in the non-Eurocentric world as for anybody else. Now, the second part of your question, is there any value in this? Again, I'd say, of course there is. And you and I needn't look too far for how this can be done. One example, consider somebody that we've already spoken about on this podcast, Ejaz Ahmed. I'd argue that Ahmed does exactly the sort of thing that you're talking about, which is engaging in theory from a vantage point that is the non-Western, and critically, in, in his case at least, the non-immigrant point of view. And he's as much of a dyed-in-the-wool Marxist as, as Eagleton is. Um, I, I wonder, though, if, if both have written about the same thing. It'd be interesting to see um, what kind of contrast there might be between their writings. Sure. I think I think Ajaz Ahmed and Terry Eagleton might be, as you said, died in the wool kind of Marxist, um, except Ajaz Ahmed is very conscious, and, and we had spoken about this earlier, I remember, how conscious he is of the Marxisms that are excluding people like him uh, within the within the Western or metropolitan ac- academic 
um, you know, halls of fame, and and then Marxism becomes uh, in its liberator liberatory claim also another fold of exclusion. Um, so so having said all that, um, my last question to you, and uh, forgive me for for making it sound a bit perplexing. Where do we go from here? Once again, I'm going to respond with something that that Eagleton says: one orthodoxy will will replace another, and so. It's inevitable that whatever orthodoxy Eagleton seemed to have such trouble with will be replaced. I think that much is 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 a given. But we can hope. And and I think that we're done with the kind of approach that postmodernism espoused of an absolute lack of meaning in everything, or indeed their claimed impossibility of meaning. I wouldn't want to hazard any specific guesses about what's coming down the corner, but there are some currents that I think will have some effect on what's to come. I'm I'm thinking in particular about um, how it would be interesting to see what comes out of this current tension between the academy on one hand and the growing tide of anti-intellectualism across the world. Maybe one thing that will happen is that the way theory is talked about will change and and become a more inclusive, approachable kind of discourse in which more of us can participate. But before we sign off, I just want to turn this question around to you, Adri. Where do we go from here? We go to the pub down the road. That's where that's where um, theory began. Theory didn't be- begin, uh, and I'm very much a champion of theory. Uh, theory did not begin um, in universities, in libraries. Uh, I, I am very much the believer that uh, important ideas of the future, of revolution, etc., um, began on the streets and in pubs and in, in cafes and in public places um, where people dared to make themselves heard and uh, speak a language and speak in a language and speak a language and speak... Um, of, of futures and possibilities that were forbidden. Um, so, so here's to theory and to democratization of the theory. Here's to theory indeed. What a wonderful note to sign off on. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Atri. This has been Thank amazing you. fun. Don't forget to join us for our next episode. Stay tuned. <laughs>